You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. Good to have you braving the roads to come here and join us to worship. Thank you, worship team, again, for leading us, even if it's on the side. Appreciate that. And great decorations to remind us if we needed it. I guess Walmart has already done that for us, but uh, to remind us here why we're celebrating the risen Savior, not just a baby. He rose, he died, rose up as an adult, died, rose again, and lives now. So I'd invite you to turn in your scriptures to Mark one more time. Mark chapter 16. We're going to be looking at this passage at the end of Mark 9 through 20 in a, in a way today, and I'm saying that. As you're turning there, um, I'm going to be reading from John 18.33. So I'm going to start with that, depending on where you want to go. If you want to turn a lot, you can go to John 18.33 um, or Mark 16 is where we'll be. We've got a picture. We can show that up here. We've got a picture from last week from Madeline. Where did she go? She's over here. And Madeline drew this of the Jesus rising. He has risen. Don't be afraid. And there's the women going to the tomb and wondering, I think it says in there, who's going to roll this away? Um, and here's the, the, the angel sitting on top of the stone saying, do not be afraid. So thank you, Madeline, for turning that in. And... Uh, Kids, for your drawings, appreciate that. Let me read from John 18. You'll see why in in a little while, but let me go to John 18, 33, before we look at at this passage in particular. It says this, we're kind of going backwards here, Pilate and Jesus. Some of you from Truth Project will recognize this. God's word says this in John 18, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Let me pray for our time together again. Lord, as we dive into some deeper material today, I pray that our assuredness of the word of God before us, of the truth that we have that points to the true One, Jesus Christ, in whom is ultimate reality. Lord, I pray that we would not uh, go astray here. You would guide my very words uh, to speak truth, guide us to hear truth today, and to learn much as we look at this ending of Mark and we look forward to this Advent season. We look at the gift of Scripture that you've given us. Holy Spirit, we just pray your work on this day with those that have gathered. And I'm asking for my own heart as well, Lord. Change us. Give us eyes to see again your glory and the glorious truth before us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to be looking at the end passage here of Mark. And if you have an ESV, probably I didn't look it up, NIV, NASB, you're going to see a line before we get to this passage that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Be it wise or unwise, I'm seeking today and there is no clock back there. So this is a good day for this to happen. Uh, I'm seeking to help us understand why that phrase is there and this ending of Mark. 
Some would say, uh, in my experience, I think listening to others, would you preach this? I don't know if I'd preach that end of Mark. Some would, some wouldn't. I'm just going to go ahead and do this and look at this with you and see why, why is it disputed, what's going on here, and to try to help you understand what's going on. Some of you may have already researched this. You perhaps even can explain it better than I. Uh, it could be one of the oddest starts to our Advent season. Looking, we're going to look at the, the idea of textual criticism today, uh, but we'll just trust the Lord that in His providential timing, that's that's where we're at. And I am thankful because I think it will lead into really a thankfulness for the word that we have before us. Um, I, I recognize today, as we look at Scripture, whenever we look at it and we say, well, what did certain texts of Scripture say? And looking at history, again, beyond just the words, but how did, our, how did we get our Scriptures? There is potential here to cause some to question the Bible before you. Say, is this the word, and I thought this, and he's saying this, and I just want to, my prayer today is in the end, we will look with greater faith and trust in the words that God has given us. Um, we want to see God's word as truly a good and gracious gift to us. So before we get into kind of explaining even that whole word that I just used, textual criticism, um, I want to lay a couple foundations here before we proceed. And I'm going to try to use my new fancy clicker. I have red light and I have arrows. So look at that. There we go. Okay, so here's a foundation for us as we get in, into um, this. I hold to what our statement of faith holds. And this is an abbreviation. I kind of took out, kind of crunched it together on Scripture, what it holds in concerning Scripture. So before we even talk about Where's the history of Scripture? Where are we going? Here's what I hold to. Here's what we hold to as a church. It says this, All Scripture, the 66-book canon, is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God. By which we mean that God superintended human authors so that using their individual human personalities, they composed and recorded without error His message to man in the words of the original autographs. Okay, what was originally written in those autographs, we believe this is God-inspired uh, Scripture. The, it goes on to say, so I'm skipping a little bit not to read the whole thing. The Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice, being fully sufficient for every human need and all that pertains to life and godliness. And it goes on another place. The truth of Scripture always stands in judgment of men Never do men stand in judgment of it. So we're going to do some evaluating. We're going to be looking today. But again, we want to be careful to be not us over the Scripture saying, yes, I determine it is true because I say it is. That's not it. it is true because God is true. We're, just, we're looking at it and, and even more so just looking at how it was brought, brought about. So I hold to the inerrancy of the Word of God. That's not up for debate. We're not pondering if God's Word is true. It is. We're just looking today at some of the different manuscripts of the Word and where they, where they disagree and what do we do with that. So, again, not determining whether it's true. We're just trying to get close, as close as we can to what the original autograph, what that author wrote. And I think we can get quite close. Second foundation, uh, you have before you in your lap if you have a Bible before you, if you don't, there's in the chairs there, a reliable copy of Scripture. God has gifted the church, uh, especially in the last two centuries, we're going to look at just numerous manuscripts and scholars, some not so good scholars, but many, to help us have an accurate, the most accurate translation we can have. So today, again, it's not a day to take our Bible. We're not ripping out chunks of our Bible. We're just examining kind of an overview manner of how our Bible came to be. And there's so many more streams. We're just going in, in one stream here. Number three, I think is really important. You can't study this too much or be fearful in your study. We don't want to come to this and go, and which I can be prone to do. Here's, a, here's someone that disagrees with the Bible. I don't want to read. I don't want to read. You, we can read. And you can research and you can dive in and because God can take it. 
And so uh, we don't want to be fearful in our study of looking at some, something like this passage and going, oh boy, uh, we want to just dive in. And God has given us gifts through the church, through archaeologists and, and all these sorts of things to help us understand that. Um, again, today it can bring up some questions. It can be confusing. I'm not saying I'm going to present it. Hopefully it's clear and I'm using PowerPoint today to try to help it be more clear as we look at this passage, but I encourage you study it on your own. Uh, don't be afraid to dive in or to look. Find some good materials. If you need help, talk to me. Some good books that you can look more into this. Um, so let's do this. Let's read uh, Mark 16, 8. Hopefully you're there. I'm going to just pick up at 8. Um, I'll read from the ESV, and we do want to read what does it say here, so let's read that all the way through 20, and then we'll talk some more about it. So verse 8, kind of just picking up, and they went out, these women, they went out, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And again, here's our, here's our phrase here, at least in the ESV, it's got this little bracket, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Okay, check that. We'll come back to it. Let's read it, though. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with them as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. <clears throat> so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. We're going to do some external thinking on this passage and on this particular phrase that you see before you here that some of the manuscripts don't include. Well, what does this mean? What manuscripts is at least the ESV and however maybe you have it worded um, the only one would be the King James would not, you wouldn't find this in there if that's what you're using, and we'll uh, possibly explain that here as we go along. What manuscripts? Well, here's, here's the manuscripts. How many manuscripts do we have? Uh, how many Greek texts are there? I saw in my reading 5,300 to 5,500. 5,500 manuscripts. Now, not all of them complete copies of the Word, but here and there, different places, um, Kind of this Paul Wagner uh, wrote a book on textual criticism that I'm going to quote from some here. He says of the approximately 5,500 extant, that's not an ant that was an X, or that's, that's those that are beyond the original. So those, in addition to the original, those 5,500 that we have, uh, about 116 are papyrus manuscripts or fragments, 274 are uncial manuscripts, 2,555 are minuscule manuscripts. 2,280 are lectionaries. So that's what makes that up. Imagine that, if you will, on this stage just to help you think through. So imagine if I could place 5,500 manuscripts up there and we say, go, figure out the end of Mark. And that's kind of what has happened that pastors and we don't have to figure our Bibles have figured some of that out for us, uh, the translators, I should say, and so that's helpful. Um, okay, here's some of the Greek manuscripts. We went through it quickly. We'll just look through some of these. Uh, the first, I think some of the oldest are really the papyri, written on papyrus, a reed-type 
uh, plant, paper made out of plants, really. Um, some of the earliest ones, we'll see one later on. Some of the manuscripts are this, this uncio manuscript. Can, can you read that? Can anyone read that? You, it's really, this is what it would look like to read a script in uncial. I wrote that and I can't read it. It's, it's, all, it's all capitals and it's all together. So when you, they're digging around, you know, in the dirt, just bear with me, you know, they're digging as an illustration. They pull up this code, they pull up this document, they look at it, and it's got all capitals and they're all together like, kind of like this, but in Greek. That's an uncial manuscript. So there's papyri. So maybe one section's our papyri, another uncial. Minuscule then, right there, is just the smaller, uh, believe, written in cursive, uh, and then some other Greek is actually in lectionaries, just what they would have used like in a church service to have a book. So we're getting some manuscripts just from that. So maybe not a, a book per se, but a book of Scripture, uh, you know, say uh, Ephesians from Paul, maybe within a, a lectionary, something they would use for a church service. There's some other sources. That's just the Greek. Then there's some of these. The versions. Now, this is like early translations. We have NIV, King James, ESV, all those. Well, back here, back in earlier, closer to the time of when the Scripture, at least the New Testament, that's what we're the subject of New Testament today. Uh, the versions, like Latin or Coptic or Syria, uh, Syria, um, translations, 30,000 of those. The next one here I find really fascinating patristic uh, quotations that's not patriotic quota- that's patristic meaning fathers early church fathers like Athanasius there's Eusebius there's all these there's Jerome there's all these church fathers kind of in the early time period of the church that wrote they would have writings much like today you might read Chuck Swindoll or John Piper or some, Tim Keller something like that uh, these were the, the men of the church and within their quotations, they're quoting uh, a million, what, there's a million different quotations? What, what, what was I saying? N- a million New Testament quotes in the early church fathers. Okay, it said here, and as I read this, if we lost the versions and say we lost all our 5,500 Greek manuscripts, we could still make up most, if not all, of the New Testament based on just what the church fathers put in their own writings. We just have an abundance, an abundance of resources when it comes. Presents some difficulties like we're in in Mark, but there's an abundance for us here. Okay. Well, back to our Greek manuscripts per se. So we're not talking about versions now, but just Greek manuscripts. Even those manuscripts, think of our 5,500 here on the stage, they're in different textual families. Textual families. Uh, it's kind of like, I don't see many Voights here today or Lunnings or Croakers. Uh, my grandpa, George, has some characteristics. Those are passed down to my dad, passed down to me, who will be passed down to Harrison and passed down and, and so forth through the generations or the Voights or Lunnings. Same thing. It's, it's like these family traits. Well, there's these textual families in Greek that have certain traits that are passed down. Or you can look at a manuscript and say, for our illustration, it's related. I, there's a grandpa I saw over here, and it looks kind of similar. And the way they do that is s- some of the places where there's different, where they copied it a certain way or it looked uh, a certain, you know, some scribe crossed out a letter or replaced a letter or something like that. They might see the same letter in this document over here and say, oh, these are, they're related. I don't know how they figure all this out, but they do. That's, it's beyond me, but they can figure out where at least some of these, and, and again, there's going to be some differences as, as you go, um, but they figure out these families. Uh, and so here's what the families are. There's three of them. There's these families. So there's, I'll start at the bottom here. There's the Byzantine family. This family of manuscripts is really where we got the King James Bible from. It was the most, it's the largest amount of our manuscripts are from this, largest amount. 
but they have their own difficulties in those Greek. Okay, they're not. Uh, we don't throw them out at all. There's just there's some differences, and so there's but there's a large amount of them. If we look at the Alexandrian family, there's less of them, but they're earlier. Um, named after Alexandria, Egypt. I think that's kind of where they're seeing the source. How cool is it that 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 Israel uh, fled Egypt, and we're you know now our scriptures come from from there. At least we found some that were preserved. A good dry climate will preserve uh, some of these documents from of old, uh, but they're very early. So they're earlier. Um, two of them, two of these texts date to the 4th century or 300s A.D. Uh, in that range. One is the, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, another the Codex Vaticanus. Now that doesn't mean it's a Catholic, it's just that's where they found it in the, uh, in the Vatican, I think in the 1400s, but it dates to the 300s. Uh, codex, by saying Codex, means book. So there's Codex Sinaiticus. They, this guy, Constantine Tischendorf, was in the traditional Mount Sinai, and we've had our debates about where that is in your Bible, but where it traditionally shows up, there's a monastery there. And this guy was there. I can't remember if it was the 1800s that he was there. Um, he's in there looking at things, and he finds these manuscripts. And some of them, the monks in the place, were actually just building their fire on them. They weren't demeaning. They were just, well, we've got to have something to burn, you know, for keep warm here. He saved, I, I think, more than those, but at least the... This Codex Sinaiticus was an old Alexandrian-type manuscript. And then there's the Western. These are various regions um, just not as reliable to base a text on. But here's the, here's the scholar, us for today. We're playing in the scholar world. We're coming to the end of Mark, and we're looking at it, and we're trying to figure out, okay, which documents have Mark and which include this ending and which don't, and how do we look and how do we do all these things? Um, let me read this quote here from Paul Wegner again. He says this, the verbal agreement, now think of all the manuscripts, Alexandrian, Byzantine, Western, these different families. The verbal agreement between various New Testament manuscripts is closer than between many English translations of the New Testament. should give us hope here. And two, the percentage of variance. That is, you know, this one has a different word than this one, that sort of thing. It's small, approximately 7%. And no matter of doctrine hinges on a variant reading. That's important for us. Okay, we're looking at doctrine. A variant reading does not change the deity of Christ or anything like that. As we look, I saw it somewhere in my reading that take all the variants. And just use those. Take the disputed texts, put them together. You're, it'll still you still have the same doctrine uh, that shows through. Okay, so what is all this? Again, back to our study in Mark. What does this say here? We're taking in all these sources and we're examining them. And what we're doing is the art and science of textual criticism. And again, we're in different territory with sermons uh, today. Just bear with me as we look at this. Here's how, again, Paul Wagner defines this idea of textual criticism. I don't have a slide for you on this one. He defines it this way. It's the process of searching through the various sources of the biblical text to determine the most accurate or reliable reading of a particular passage. Then he goes on to say, Textual criticism, therefore, mainly concerns itself with this small portion of the biblical text called variant readings. A variant reading is any difference in wording, for example, differences in spelling, added or omitted words, uh, and, and the list goes on, that occur among the different manuscripts. Okay, so end quote there. So one manuscript might have, uh, it might say, you know, um, they went to the store or to the market. Another place might just say they went to market and leave out the word the. You're saying that's not much of a big deal. And I think most of them aren't like that. But that's, you get a flavor of some of what these differences are. Uh, another uh, writer whom Paul Wagner quotes, Bruce Metzger, 
comments, and he says this. Approximately one textual note appears for every ten words, thus. 90% of the text is without significant variation. So you open up your New Testament, what is he saying? 90% of the time you're not going to see different variations. But there are areas where the manuscripts differ like we talked about, and that's where we get these notes in our Bible. If you're in an ESV, if you look at, um, where is it, at the bottom, wherever your chapter 16 or maybe 15 is, you see, you see some manuscripts. I'm looking at the small note with the little number one. Some manuscripts insert cried out and. Uh, I'm not seeing where it, that note is from, but it's from up on the page. Oh, there it is. Uh, from verse 39. If you look at Mark 15:39, we're just practicing here. So it says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he, and we got a little note, little number one there, and you go down to the little number one, and it says, Some manuscripts insert cried out and breathed his last. So did Jesus breathe his last, or did he cry out and breathe his last? You look at that and go, well, it, you know, we're just trying to say, what did the original say? Was it cried out? Did it breathe? You know, and, and put those together. For instance, the SV here in this case is saying the most reliable manuscripts we have don't put in the words cried out. Okay? But they're just saying yeah, it's possible because some of the manuscripts do say that. Um, and so hopefully that, that helps you. And so... We've seen these as we've gone through Mark. It's just that at the end, it's just kind of big and out there. Okay. Well, here are some steps Wagner gives if you're going to do some of this textual criticism. And I don't know that you're going to come away from here and just go like jump to do this, but you might. And uh, uh, it helps to understand the Greek, which I'd love to do some Greek. And and, uh, it'd be fun to learn some of that with you guys. But uh, here's some things he keeps in mind. So... I'll just look through them briefly here with you. One, manuscripts must be weighed and not merely counted. It's not just however many you have, majority rules. It's the manuscripts themselves are weighed. Are they of the Alexandrian family, the Byzantine family, the Western? Where are these families from? Uh, And so they're weighed in that way. Uh, He lists some criteria for weighing a manuscript. One, you look at the date. If it's earlier the better. The closer to, so the Bible's all composed here within the first 100, you know, to 100 AD, somewhere in there, you got a manuscript that's to the, what, be third century or 200 or one, even the, the second century, you go, okay, that's pretty close. So dates help give weight to the manuscript. Uh, accuracy, how accurate is the tradition? Uh, and also independence of witnesses. Do, do, do you get evidence from various geographical locations or just one place? The next criteria here, at least from Wagner, is to examine the tradition. We talked about some of this, the Alexandrian or the Western or the Byzantine. Number three, determine the reading that would most likely give rise to the others. Uh, so you're reading something in a Greek manuscript and you're going, okay, did... Did the copyist put in something here uh, to kind of make it easier or understand it? What's the reading behind that, trying to understand some of that? Here's a great one. The more difficult reading is preferable. (laughs) You you would think we would sure like the more easier reading, but the difficult one when you're doing this is better. Why? Because probably what could have happened is the scribes going along and going... I don't like how that sounds because that tends to put God in a bad light. So the scribe changes a word or something to change it. And so as you're looking and comparing these, you go, well, this one is harder to understand, but it's probably more accurate because the scribe didn't change it. See if you can understand. Now, here's an interesting quote. Yeah. (laughs) Think of these scribes copying these 5,500 manuscripts, you know, and, and all of the, what we've lost already, but uh, he says this, scribes who thought, they, th- they think, scribes who thought were more dangerous than those who wished merely to be faithful in copying what lay before them. You want a scribe that does not think I- in this matter because you want him to just go A, B, C, D, okay, A, B, C, D, not to say, well, that's the alphabet, I know where it, you know, and to think through it. You, 
You want them just to take the copy and make another copy. And again, we're not, we don't have uh, Canon copiers or Samsung or whatever. This is by hand getting through all these copies, which presents issues, but amazingly how God has preserved 5,500 and a million if you count the fathers and 30,000 of the versions uh, and all these for us. Okay, uh, back to our little list here. The shorter reading is generally preferable. Again, a longer reading, you might have a scribe saying, well, let me just add a little bit to explain what's going on. So the shorter is a little better. Um, and then lastly, determine which reading is more appropriate in its context. And so this even, we'll see a little bit in Mark here in the context. So you're looking at, does this reading sound like Mark? Are there things in here that look like what he would say and that sort of thing? Again, it's, it's not a perfect science. It's, it's art and science for those that would do this. All right, so we ready to look at Mark? Uh, I'll be rather brief. We're not going to be long here. There's our quote. And now the fun begins. Uh, so now you've learned. We've learned Alexander and Western and Byzantine. I don't claim to know every symbol up here. That's why the ones in blue are linked. So you put your finger on them and it tells you. And so that's helpful. I can't do that here. So I'm going off memory on some of these. But uh, here's how it starts. So here's uh, verse 8 and it says omit verses 9 through 20. So this is kind of this is, if you're looking at a Greek text, the Greek is up here and this little apparatus is below. And it's telling you, okay, here's what's going on with this verse. And so as you read it, they put an A here, which means they're pretty sure. If there was a letter C there, they're not so sure. You put a letter A, they're pretty sure that their first to, to omit these verses is pretty certain. We're pretty certain these verses should not be included. But they include them because of uh, other th- even antiquity, history, and other documents do include them. But they're omitted here. One symbol here is this, this Sinaiticus. It's what kind of looks like an X. It's a Hebrew letter for Aleph. And then B, this is that Vaticanus. So two of these older Alexandrian-type documents do not have this longer ending in them, nor does 304. I looked that up, and I can't remember. Here's a version, the Syriac or Coptic or Armenian. Uh, I can't remember that one. Here's a church father, Eusebius, Epiphanius. Okay, I won't pronounce that one. Jerome, I can pronounce. All right. All these say, no, we don't think there's verses 9 through 20. Then it gets kind of confusing because then here, here the next one, some add a shorter ending only. They don't do a longer ending. There's just a shorter ending only. Uh, Some... So these marks separate. Some add a shorter ending and verses 9 through 20. It's these here through there. Some add 9 through 20 with a critical note. I think that's those that would say, we're going to add it, but we're not really sure we should. Uh, And then at the end, adding verses 9 through 20, then you've got some other, um, uh, other different Greek manuscripts here. Uh, with long edition, and it kind of goes through here. All these numbers represent different manuscripts. So they're, they're numbers like 1,006. It's, some, it's a manuscript. I think it's in the families of manuscripts. Um, I, oh, no, these are the minuscules. Yeah, yeah, I can remember some of this. So um, here's BYZ, Byzantine. Here we have some of there and on down. So you get a sense. So you come to this, and that's kind of what's behind... When you read the little phrase, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20, this is what's behind some of this. Here's how the ESV Study Bible uh, states this on these verses. They say this, This longer ending is missing from various old and reliable Greek manuscripts, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, as well as numerous early Latin, Syriac, Uh, Armenian and Georgian manuscripts. Early church fathers, for example, Origen and Clement of Alexandria did not appear to know of these verses. Eusebius and Jerome state that this section is missing in most manuscripts available at their time. And some manuscripts that contain verses 9 through 20 
indicate that older manuscripts lack the section. On the other hand, some early and many later manuscripts, such as manuscripts known as A, C, and D, contain verses 9 through 20, and many church fathers, such as Arrhenius, evidently knew uh, these verses. So can we be sure? Can I stand here and say, so they shouldn't be included? Absolutely. I can't say that. I lean towards they shouldn't be in here as Holy Scripture to say these are God's Word just because of their disputed past. But again, there's other documents that say, no, we have them in there. So that's where I lean towards they shouldn't be part of Mark here. A couple of other observations internally on this passage. If you look at these verses just by themselves, I'm looking at a few places. I'm looking at verse 9 in Mark 16 where it says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, again, this, this fellow that wrote this book on textual criticism, Paul Wegner, points out here that that phrase in your verse 9, the first day of the week, is, is spelled differently than if you look back at chapter 16, verse 2. Remember the women came? very early on the first day of the week, there, there's some spelling differences. And, and I think you could look at that and say, well, if it's the same writer, if Mark wrote this 9 through 20, shouldn't they be the same? Now, you could say, well, he changed it up. He was different. Sure, sure, you could say that. Um, but that might be one area. Just looking internally again, look at, look at Mary Magdalene here and how she's described. It's Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. T to me, it's almost introducing Mary again. Now, she's already been introduced. We've seen her at the cross in 15 verse 40. Uh, we see her again at 16 verse 1. And now, and now it comes up that she's the one that Jesus had cast out seven demons from. So internally, you kind of go, I don't know if that's to be there. Um, thinking about the snakes and holding serpents. We do see Paul being bit by a snake after being shipwrecked, shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Um, but I don't think we see any other mention of handling snakes or deadly, drinking deadly poison. Now, uh, one writer, and again, I'm, I'm saying I'm, we're not, I'm not in the 100% boat, but near it. Uh, one writer said, well, if you look at it kind of symbolically, I think he was talking about drinking deadly heresy so a true believer won't drink deadly heresy like they won't drink poison and be harmed maybe you could kind of work that in uh, somehow there um, again most helpfully i think what we need to look at in this section is to say much of what is written here and if you have a reference bible if you have a bible that has a bunch of references you will see a bunch i, I think because the thoughts here and what's going on here are found in other places of scripture and we di i didn't bring that out for you today but there's lots of other places where we see similar things the great commission in matthew 28 not attested not up for debate it's there um at least i believe i didn't look for sure but i don't think there's any textual criticism dealing with that uh, particular place uh, where we but where we do see it here in mark again no doctrine is hinged on this passage and like I said, much of it we can find elsewhere. Here's a, maybe a reassuring quote from Sir Frederick Kenyon. He says it is reassuring at the end, as we're studying this, to find that the general result of all these discoveries, all these, I think we're talking about manuscript discoveries, and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the Scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity, the veritable Word of God. Here's what I find most helpful in our discussion on textual criticism. I hope you see this. The church could look at this section and like the Wizard of Oz, if you've seen that, be like the wizard behind the curtain, remember? And he's like, this is the, I forget what he says, this is the Wizard of Oz. And the curtain, little Toto, I think, finds this guy back there and the the curtain kind of swings open so Dorothy and her friends see this guy and he says, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. We could look at Scripture and say, well, d just don't, don't look at that. 
I, the scriptures have not done that. They've given you, ESV, other versions are giving you help within to say, okay, some of these have some different manuscript places that we're looking at. It, in other words, they're transparent about the issues out there. It's not like, well, don't look at that. It's look at it. Go ahead and look at all 5,500, and I think if you took the time, you could find them uh, online and look at them. I, you can search images and find different papyri and uncials and read to your heart's content, try to figure it out. But it's there for you to search. It's not hidden. And I find that as wonderful uh, for our study. It's not a hidden like, oh, we hope we don't, we, we hope Christians never find that part. It's we found it, we're searching. And again, the goal is not to adjust scripture, change doctrine. Is God true or untrue? It's, that's, the goal is can we get back as close as we can to those original autographs penned by, in our case here, Mark himself. Did Mark write this? Okay? We've looked at it throughout chapter 16. Most of the places we see it. And then we see some of those, some manuscripts say this, uh, scattered throughout. <clears throat> well, let me transition a little bit. And I hopefully I have not aired you in any wrong way. And I would encourage you if you find questions Ask me, I'm, I'm no expert on this, but I can try and help you or point you, and I encourage your own search of it if it kind of just goes, I have not heard this before, and I just, let's communicate about that. Let's transition just a little bit, though, as we think about, we're still on the idea of Scripture, and again, I'm thankful there's no clock, don't look at your watch, uh, to think about God's Word, and I'll be brief here, but how He has preserved this Word for us. Think of those 30,000 versions, a million quotes, 5,500 manuscripts. I, I think, is it Homer's Iliad has 650 manuscripts, and that's the most of any ancient type document, and we have 5,500 of them. Um, we have an amazing an amount. As we look through and we come to Advent and we near Christmas, we are looking at the theme here of God's uh, good and gracious gifts. So we're transitioning out of the book of Mark. We will come back to a book study probably at the beginning of the year, most likely in the book of Joshua. If you want to start reading there. But through the Advent, we're going to be looking at God's good and gracious gifts. And I'd like Jonathan, you still in here? Jonathan, come on up here. We're going to be looking each week at these gifts. And we've been looking at one of these gifts. And I'm going to have Jonathan help me out. All you have to do, Jonathan, is just open this. And it's yours. And it's, it says, can you read what it says on the, the thing? To my church and from God. To my church from God. Okay, just rip it open. You don't have to be careful with it. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, you can let it drop. It's okay. So we're looking at what God has given the church as Jonathan works on that. Well, that's a hard way. Here, you want to try that one? That's easier. Yeah. I'll hold it for you. See if you can find the gift down in there. Now, why did I pick Jonathan? I actually randomly picked his name because Jonathan did some pictures of the week somewhere during the year, so I picked out randomly his name to come help me. And so if you've done some pictures this year, you too will come. What do you find in there, Jonathan? You know what that is? A fake Bible. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. But it kind of looks like a Bible, right? It's a little ornament. That's yours. You can keep that. But it's a reminder of what God has given us in the Scriptures before us. God gave us this gift. And I want to just look real briefly, I'm not going to be long here, on what he has given us. As we come away now from our textual, our little more scientific study, and just say, Lord, what have you given in your word? And first, we look at scripture. God gives us history in his word. Genesis to Revelation, we have the history that God's given us. From creation to the future, uh, God has given us history. He's also put in here, and this is, ties back into what we've been studying, 
This question in the garden before Eve from the serpent. Genesis 3, 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I'm glad God put that history in the Word. Because when we come to an area like textual criticism, where you start looking at, is the New Testament reliable? Can I trust it? These sorts of things. What does Satan, I think, love to do? Yep, you better doubt. You better look. At least works on me that way. And I come to this verse in Genesis 3 and go, I know history. And I know the serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say? And I think that is the lie before us as we look at even this ending of Mark. Did God really say? No, we have manuscripts. We trust in a true God that he did really say. Uh, R.C. Sproul says this, Ultimately, we believe the Bible to be inerrant. It's without error. Because it comes from God himself. It is unthinkable to contemplate that God might be capable of error. Therefore, his word cannot possibly contain errors. This is our faith. We can trust the Bible because we can trust, again, not man, we can trust the Bible because we can trust God. Another gift of this. God gives us his inspired word. God gives it to us. Here's what, uh, quoting from 2 Timothy 3, I think I'm starting in verse 15. Paul says this to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. Our statement of faith would say inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He's given us his inspired word. Just in case you think that just means the Old Testament, uh, uh, it's Peter also who refers to Paul's writings as Scripture, all Scripture. Number three, God gives us his word through the prophets of old and the apostles of Jesus. God gives us through prophets, through the apostles. First Thessalonians 2.13 says, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Number four, God gives us his lasting word. Let me read a couple verses for you. We're going to look at one real brief. Matthew five seventeen through 18. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then, if you will, just go to Mark 13, 31. We've seen this before. If you're still in Mark 13, 31. Hear this about God's lasting word. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Evidence, we've seen it today. And those textual families, quotes of the patristic fathers, all that sort of thing. Uh, lastly, God reveals himself through his word. God reveals the gift of the word as he reveals himself through it. We're celebrating Christmas based on the word of God. We celebrate our salvation based on the word of God. We live by the word of God. We counsel by the word of God. And our hope for the future is based in the word of God. That's how God reveals himself through the spirit in his word. I pray it'll lead us, that God will lead us through his word to the word incarnate, Jesus, our Savior. And I want to encourage you to be students of this word. Even start for this holiday season to say, I want to dig deeper than I have before. Read the Christmas story again or read another part of it. Or read. I, I just heard recently somewhere some, somebody was saying that a lady they know reads a gospel every day. One gospel every day. What would that be like for a year? 
Um, so let me encourage you to be a student of the word. I have one last picture for you. It's of P-52. It's not a Mustang. That is a type of airplane. This is P-52 right here. It's a papyri. Now we, now we can talk all these, you know, all these things. Papyri. You can see it's kind of a front and back. Here's, I can't remember which is which. One of these is the front page. This is the back side. And you can see the writing on it. It's all capitals. There is a little bit of space, but all capitals were in a uncial manuscript. But this is P52. One of the oldest papyri fragments we have. And it dates to around, I think here, I don't have it on there. Uh, I think it's beginning of, it would be like in 125 AD, somewhere around there, maybe, maybe 110 AD. If John wrote some of his, I think John's gospel, maybe as late as 90, I can't remember in there, the 80s, 90s, 70s, somewhere in there. This is pretty close to this. And it actually does come from the book of John. And it comes from the section I read in the beginning from John 18. How fitting is it that the earliest copy, and this little fragment, it's about, you know, like that. You can look it up. It's in England. You can go see it live. This earliest copy, what does it have on it? It has this account. Now it's kind of, you know, it's torn, but it's this account of Pilate before Jesus saying, what is truth? And Jesus says, I've come to proclaim truth. And this is the earliest manuscript we have. We have a gift from God in our Bible. Let's read it and be people of the word. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray, Lord, today for any that that this material, Lord, that I think we needed to cover has caused to question in a wrong way. Father, would you protect them from any of Satan's attacks that would attack your word? Because we know that's what he loves to do. Did God really say, oh, Father, you're true. You've proved yourself over and over. Thank you for your truth. Father, I pray that we would take, some of us have probably five copies, ten copies of the Bible in our home. Lord, some of us need to read it more. Lord, I hope, Lord, I just pray there's not guilt here, but that you would just cause us to read it, not out of a guilt or a I have to, but out of a joy to know our Savior. It's how we know salvation. It's how we know this world. It's how we're to operate in this place. And so I pray, Lord, you would guide us to be men and women in this church that we're known at Bethany, not for pride's sake, not for anything like that, but we're known that they're people of the word. When they speak, it's like they just talk about the word. Lord, I'm praying that for my heart, for our hearts, and that you would lead us in that. Thank you for your preservation, your gracious gift to us.